Well, hello everyone. It is Bible study time, and we are in Acts chapter 26. But before we start, just pray with me, please. Father, we come to you, and we we know that only through your Holy Spirit are we really going to understand this chapter. So we just welcome him into an anointing time over our lives so that we our mind, our hearts, our ears, our spiritual eyes, everything is in tune, ready to receive what you have for us. Lord, we thank you again for loving us so much that you don't want us to miss anything, and we will truly give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So do you have your Bible? Do you ever say this, even though I, that we're not a person? Do you ever say, this is my Bible? I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it is all that I need. Okay, now, last week we, I just want to um, get in that setting so that you picture this um, and, and that you understand where Paul is right now, and he has been before Felix, and then passed on to Festus, and then Festus then passed him on to King Agrippa, and uh, the, where we left him last week was when King Agrippa um, had come to visit Festus and his wife, and um, um, oh, I found I got a, a little more goods on that. Um, I found out that the reason why they get together is because um, Drusilla, Festus's wife, and Bernice, King Agrippa's wife, they're sisters. So we have a little real, we have a little um, family relationship going on here. And so we we kind of mentioned last week that the two guys were were just kind of probably after dinner just. Uh, conversing about, you know, business, and and uh, Festus brings up this unusual um, problem that he's got, and so he tells King Agrippa about it, and King Agrippa says, you know what, I want to I wanna face this man myself. I want to hear his story, and so the next day or something, they have this big party, and and King Agrippa and Bernice come in with all pomp, and I mean it's it's for all the high-ranking officials and and very you know the the uppity up the hierarchy of the town, and they're they're all together in this room, and I kind of gave you the picture of of you know people in high high supreme positions and um, high society and, and uh, well, of course, a king and then his wife. So you can about imagine that in this audience room with all the leading officials and they are dressed to the nine and they've had a beautiful spread and, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, they bring in Paul and and that really got to me last week. You know, they're they're showing worldly success in every shape and form. And and unfortunately in our world we seem to want that. Worldly success feels good, looks good, it's impressive, people recognize us and it's it all affects that human self. And we get in our mind that that worldly success is is good. Well, you know, in some in some ways maybe it is, but I wanted you to see the contrast between what worldly success looks like. And you know, it's so fleeting, it's so superficial, it's so fluff. And it isn't lasting. And do you know that the Lord is not impressed with, with what our outer exterior achieves here so much? But he is more concerned and he is more, he, well, he's, he's really prominently working at getting our hearts ready because he knows that when our hearts are ready when our hearts are right 
then our bodies, our actions, our attitude, everything is based on our true heart condition. And so when Paul was brought in, there among all these these high society people, and then he was brought in, in it, and what a physical contrast because not only has he been under house arrest and probably hasn't well he hasn't been anywhere and he's probably not had the latest fashion of clothes by any means he's probably suffered from arthritis his body bears the scars that of what he has been through um, he has aged and so when you contrast the two, you really see physically that, you know, Paul, they're probably saying, you know, poor sap, you know, he is, he, and they're so probably prideful of themselves. But I, when I read the, the first verse of chapter 26 last week, I said, now I want you to study this lesson and see what God's success looks like there's so many there's so many of different ways that you can describe god's success and and one of them is not it's not the exterior and so god's success is is what we have become from the inside out and we see it in paul and when he stands up and he has been given permission to, to talk, King Agrippa has given Paul the permission to speak for himself. And he is going to speak with such confidence, not in and of himself by any means, but he is going to speak with such confidence in who his Lord and Savior is and what his testimony is. And so uh, let us to start in chapter 26. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, he says, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as, as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. So he, he's, you know, right away he, he has an introduction and he looks right at King Agrippa and he acknowledges that he is, he knows, he's very fortunate to be able to, to have this opportunity and I'm reminded how, and we're going to see it in this lesson, how all of a sudden I thought, that's just what the Lord said was going to happen to Paul at his conversion, that he had been set apart to be able to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and he would speak before kings. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, this is exactly what God said was going to happen. And even though you don't picture that before kings is when you're yourself a prisoner. But, you know, the Lord has a way of getting his word out. And he has a way of making opportunities happen in his way. And this is the way he chose to have Paul have the opportunity to speak before the king, before Governor Felix, Governor Festus, and then all these prominent people in, in the in the community, and and now he's even speaking for King before King Agrippa, and so Paul says, "I just want to acknowledge that I know I'm very fortunate. I'm, I considered a very big opportunity to make my defense before you, King Agrippa." But then he throws in because. I also know that you are well aware, you are well acquainted with all the customs of the Jews and even their controversies. Now, I did a little research about this, and it's not complicated, but I kind of wanted to know how Paul came to that. How did he know that King Agrippa was 
was very well acquainted with the Jewish customs and even controversies. And I found out that that he is like fourth in line since Jesus. I mean, the first King Agrippa, which was, you know, Herod Agrippa. That that was new to me. They kind of have two names. So his name is Agrippa, but Herod was like Pharaoh. They have a title. And Agrippa was the name that they passed down. And his great-grandfather, his great-grandfather was the one that tried to kill baby Jesus. And remember when, when Jesus was born and the wise men um, uh, were told not to go back, and, and, uh, but yet uh, King Herod Agrippa knew that, that he was being challenged and he was threatened and he was jealous. And so he had all baby boys um, killed from that time span in that area of Bethlehem. And so th his great-grandfather was the one who had that done. And then his grandfather, his grandfather is the one that killed John the Baptist. So, and remember, this is all in Jewish territory. And apparently the king, back from great-grandfather to grandfather to father to now Agrippa, they're given this territory. They're in charge of Jewish territory. In fact, they even have control of the Jewish priesthood. And so then it made sense that, of course, then that these Herods, these Agrippas, would, would be very well acquainted. And then his, his father, his father was the one that murdered James. He Remember, James was the apostle, the first apostle murdered. So not nice guys from great-grandpa killing all the two-year-olds two and under. And then the, his grandpa... And then, you know, wanting to, um, he, he wanted John the Baptist's head, remember when that whole scenario about when Salome danced and, and uh, when Salome asked her mom, what, I can have anything up to half the kingdom, what should I ask for because my dance was so wonderful. And then, then she said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so... And remember, the whole reason for that is because um, Herod decided he wanted his brother's wife. And just, just a mess. What sin will do? And no matter who they think they are, they will not get away with it. But unfortunately, there's innocent victims, and John the Baptist was, was murdered. And then, of course, then his dad had murdered James. And now we have... Um, Paul saying, you know what? I know all this about you. I know your family tree. I know the reputation. I know that you know all about Jewish customs and, and controversies. So you're well, well informed. So I just thought I would tell you a little bit that that's, that's where that comes from, where Paul says, I know that you are informed, that you're well acquainted. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I mean, you can hear Paul, I beg you, would you listen to the truth? You're, you're going to, you know, there's so many lies out there about me. There's so many things that, that just simply are not true, and there's no proof. Remember last week we said that there, there was just no proof, and that's why Festus was kind of, I don't know what to do. I mean, he's appealed to Caesar, and I have no goods to send him to Caesar with. This is kind of embarrassing. And so Paul said, um, I beg you, listen to my side. And then he goes on and says, the Jews all know. I mean, when, when I could picture and almost hear Paul say, 
they know, they know the truth. They've watched me grow up. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. So Paul is saying, they, they knew me. They watched me grow up when I lived in Tarshish, and, and Tarshish was in the, was in the province of um, Cilicia. And so he, he says, I, I have a past, and this is where I lived, and people watched me grow up. And then they saw that when I grew up, then I, when I went to Pharisee school, then I, we, went, we came to Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing. You know, that's, isn't that the kicker? You know, they know the truth. It's just a matter if they would admit it. That according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul went to school, and we all have heard and we know that he was no dumbbell. He, he grabbed on to this knowledge, and he made a reputation for himself, and he was known, and he's saying, they know that too. And now, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. So what is, what is he saying? He said, the whole problem is because, you see, now I believe in the hope. I believe what happened is true, that, that when Jesus came, what God had promised, the prophets, for hundreds of years, the promise was keep, Pressing on, keep looking ahead. The Savior is coming. You have hope. And Paul is saying, I believe that that hope has come. I believe in what God has promised. This is the promise our 12 tribes, which is just another way of saying Israel, the Jewish people, this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. I mean, our whole nation has been looking forward to this longingly for decades, for centuries. And he's saying, I believe in that hope. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. That's all it is, is that they don't want to believe. He was right there. Many have witnessed and have told testimony that they had seen and they had heard and then he said, but they choose not to believe it. And because I have, that's why they are accusing me. Why should any of you, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? If you claim to know an almighty God who nothing is impossible, who is the creator of the world, who holds the whole world in his hands, how in, the, how in the world could you possibly deny the fact that he is able to raise from the dead? He can do anything. He's God. I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See, now he's going to say, let me, let me tell you. It, it, it all sounded fishy to me. In fact, it just sounded so contradictory and wrong against Judaism that it was just hard for me to believe it too. And I admit, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. I opposed the name of Jesus of Nazareth. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. 
And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You know, when I read that, I kind of got the shivers because I thought, you know, when he, when he pours his heart out, when he admits this, it has, to, it, it has to do something to him. It has to weigh heavy on his conscience. I'm, I'm sure that, and I bring this up often, but I think this was such a turning point when Stephen stood there and in, in such a, a powerful and wonderful and confident way just spoke so boldly. And, and Paul admits that he was the one standing there holding the coats of the ones who were stoning him to death. And so when I read that, I thought, you know, I'm the authority of chief priests. I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You know, he, he, he could probably still see Stephen and then see his broken body laying there dead. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme me. In my obsession, see, he uses words, in my obsession. I mean, he was zealous. He thought he was so right. Isn't that something that you can feel yourself so right and yet be so wrong? In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. I wonder how many times Paul reminisces or it comes back to him and he remembers. And this is when I thought, oh, aren't we grateful for the word forgiveness? I don't know if Paul could be so bold and to confess what he used to do and admit what he used to do and if he hadn't experienced that beautiful word forgiveness I mean he admitted that he was the worst of all sinners but actually every one of us should wear that title because in and of ourselves, we're the worst of all sinners. And that's the point we all need to get to, to admit that. And then we realize the importance and the necessity of the cross. And how each and every one of us needs to repent and confess. And, and then experience the, the, that word, forgiveness, to be able to know that that's what the cross was for so that our sins could be bought and paid for. That the Lord Jesus himself remembers our sin no more. And that's what forgiveness is. It's such a wonderful word to be able to to grab a hold of and to be able to live from day to day knowing that our past is gone. There isn't anything that we could or have done that isn't forgivable when we come to him. That to me is just, I can't even hardly put it into words, that our past can be forgiven. Our past is gone. He remembers our past no more. And that's why I think that word is such an important word for us today in relationships. Because what causes splits, divisions, holding on to grudges, all that dysfunction, usually has to do with that word. It's when we are not willing to forgive and we can come up with all of our reasoning 
But really, when we forgive the way Jesus forgives us, see, it's called grace. Maybe it's not deserved. Maybe that person, what they did, maybe it really was. It's serious, and it shouldn't have happened. And no, it wasn't right. It wasn't fair. But when you carry an unforgiving spirit, it's just, it's like an albatross around your neck. It's just a heavy weight. And really, when we watch what Jesus did and how he forgives and how he remembers our sin no more, no wonder he comes in his teaching and his instructions is that we are to forgive we are to forgive, and how is it possible when every bit of our human nature says, I'm not gonna, they don't deserve it. Well, you know what? We didn't deserve it either, because that's what grace is, undeserved favor. But what happens when you forgive, when, you are, when you're obedient to the instructions of Jesus? I mean, he knows he knows that an unforgiving spirit is just going to be a heavy weight on us. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to permeate in so many areas of our, of our being. He says, if you just forgive and have that burden lifted. Because believe it or not, when you carry an unforgiving spirit, you're the one that, that bears the brunt. There's something uplifting when you're able to just forgive, and that doesn't mean that it's okay of what they did. It's not, it's not that they're going to get away with it, and that's why, you know, forgiveness is so hard. It's because, well, then they get away with it. But that's not true. Forgiveness is something that the Lord has, through his Holy Spirit, given us the ability to do so we can let go and let him deal with the person so that we can be set free, have the albatross off our neck. We can move forward. And you know what? Sometimes when forgiveness happens, when you are willing to forgive, there's there's something that can happen in a relationship that that relationship can be better than ever. But a lot of times we're just so stubborn, we're so stiff-necked, we want to hang on to our rights so much that we miss the blessing. I think Paul, he... The only way he knew he was able to be able to get past his past is to know that forgiveness happened. And the Lord started him anew. Now back to verse 12. On one of these journeys, so now he's going to tell King Agrippa, he's going to say, I mean, now I set the tone. Now you know what I used to do. I can't believe it myself. But in his head, as he's picturing this and remembering this, he's also, I'm sure he's got a smile on his face because he knows and he, and he remembers and he every day experiences that grace. On one of these journeys, I was going on, on to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. About noon, about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, when I read that this week, I thought, I don't remember Jesus saying that. See, it all has to do with what version of the Bible you were studying. And so I went back to the chapter where Paul um, had this experience. And, and I was right. In my version, it, it wasn't put that way. But then I looked it up in the King James Version, and it was put that way. So 
I looked it up because I really didn't understand what it meant. It's, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And it's really very simple meaning. It's Jesus is pretty much saying, um, you're trying to do the impossible. You know, it's really futile. Because I have a plan for you. And you can kick and scream all you want. And you can think that that's not where you want to go. But I will see to it that my will is accomplished. So it's pointless, Paul. That's what, he's pretty, that's what Jesus pretty much was saying to him. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You're not going to win. I am. Because I have big plans for you. Then I, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. Now, Paul, being who he was, before his conversion, he had worked himself in quite a prominent place and probably had people serving him. And now we're watching Jesus saying, your whole life is going to be different, Paul. I'm going to be able to use all the things that you have learned, and, but you're, you as a person, you're going to be so different. I'm going to appoint you to be a servant. You are now going to serve. And you're also going to be a witness. It's kind of like Paul is probably saying, yeah, that's what I mean. I'm, I'm able to stand before the King Agrippa and I can testify that I saw this light and I heard the voice of Jesus telling me, these very facts, I mean, I'm sure as King Agrippa is listening, he, it is believable because Paul is so confident and so sure because it happened to him. That's what a testimony is. He's testifying to the fact, this is what happened to me. And Jesus told me that I will be a servant and a witness and that I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. And I'm sure as Paul is saying this and then recalling all of his missionary journeys and all his, his, his adventures so far, as he watched the details of his life, how the Lord just did rescue him. Because Paul's job, until the Lord says that our job is finished on this earth he will rescue. And I'm sure, I'm so, I think so much is going on in Paul's mind as he is standing there because all of these experiences are coming to his mind. How he was rescued from the Jews, from his own people, and from the Gentiles. I'm sending, I'm sending Jesus, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Oh, I just want to say quick about what the word sanctified means. It's a beauty. After our conversion, we then are set apart from our sin and from ourself. We're growing in a whole new, we're growing into a whole new person because we're now set apart from our human self and from sin and because the Holy Spirit is now in us, we don't want to go back there anymore. We're being sanctified. He's changing us, setting us apart from all that what we used to think we wanted. 
But another phrase that Paul said that Jesus made sure he knew that his job was, it wasn't going to be easy and he would be rescued from the Jews and from the Gentiles. It was going to be a tough, tough road. And boy, from studying Acts, we know that for a fact. He did not have an easy life after he was saved. His ministry was a great, great one. That's why Paul is such a great example of, of what it looks like to be able to be a Christian and yet open our eyes to the fact that it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or that it's going to run the way we planned or that, that it's going to be comfortable and that I might not always be happy. That this is part of it. I'm sending you to them because they need, they've got the whole wrong picture. Open their eyes and turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God so they can receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, part of the family. So four things. What does it mean when our eyes are opened? When I, when I study, I want to make sure because I, I have a, well, I grew up in this. I grew up in the church. I grew up going to youth group. I grew up going to catechism. I grew up in Christian school, Sunday school, all that I grew up in this, and sometimes phrases, you know, and words, like church words or church phrases, sometimes I just stop and think, okay, I mean, I've heard that before, open my eyes or open their eyes. What, what does that really mean? Until I comprehend the fact that that we physically have a set of eyes and we physically have a set of ears. But when we are born again, when he's changing us, he is now more concerned with our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears. The spiritual eyes of the heart, the spiritual ears of the heart. So we look at something different, we hear something different. So what does it mean? How do we get our eyes opened, our spiritual eyes and ears opened? And this is, and Paul is, is telling King Agrippa, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to explain. And I never saw this before, but when he says that I am sending you, when Jesus said, I'm sending you, Paul, to them, to the Jews and the Gentiles, to open their eyes, I didn't realize that what he says, the next four points, basically, is what happens to you when your eyes are opened. You are now, when your spiritual eyes are opened, you now realize that you had been walking in the dark. You did not. You were, you were floundering. You were, you were bumping into things. You couldn't see clear because the only time we can really see clear is when we're walking in the light. The light of the world is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And when our spiritual eyes are opened, we turn from darkness. All of a sudden, it's noticeable. I wasn't even seeing right. I was walking in the dark. No wonder I didn't know how to make decisions. No wonder I didn't know how to grab a hold of that light and walk in the light and dear, follow the light. When our eyes are opened, we want the light. And then he says, You'll turn when your eyes are opened. You will, you will desire the power of, of God more than the power of Satan. You will turn from the power of Satan. And you know, until our eyes are opened, we don't even realize that we are under, the, under Satan's power. So when our eyes are opened, I think it, it's just, 
it's almost mind-boggling because we think now I'm turning from that power of Satan. He can no longer control me. He has as much power over me as what I choose to give him. And if, uh, if the Holy Spirit and I don't give him any power, he won't have any power because the Holy Spirit is all the power I need. I've changed the power of Satan to the power of God through the power of his spirit. Another thing that happens, Paul says, when your eyes are opened is that you receive forgiveness. And see, this is why I'm so convinced that Paul, when he was telling the first part of his testimony to the king Agrippa, the, the unpretty kind, you know, I used to do this and I can't believe it. I think he knows that my, when my eyes were open, when the scales came off my eyes after being blind three days, when Ananias explained it to me, when my eyes were open, I received the forgiveness of sins. And then the fourth one is when your eyes are open, you realize you now are a part of God's family. You now receive an inheritance. You now have a future. So that phrase is incredibly important that we know that our eyes have been opened, that we realize what we have in Christ. So then King Agrippa, I was, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Well, I'll tell you, he really knew how to take a lot and punch it because that is a lot from that verse alone. So then King Agrippa, I want you to know, I obeyed. It was the least I could do. I wanted to be a servant and a witness. After all what he had done for me, and first in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and Judea, I've been all over starting new churches in Gentile territory. And he says, and you know what I've been preaching? I've been preaching the same sermon everywhere. And I, I'm sure it wasn't word for word, but I'm talking about the principle. This, these principles should be in every sermon. This is what Paul is saying. No matter where I went, whether it was Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, to the Gentiles, all over, I preached because this is what's necessary for every human being. Every human being is lost. So I preach that they, in the first step of conversion, is seeing yourself the way you are and seeing your sin right before your eyes, and you repent and you turn to God. And the way you can prove, you can prove, the way you can prove that this is real, that it isn't just hot air, that it isn't just an emotional experience. It's, it's not just what we do because we live in West Michigan and this is what we do at a certain age. Paul is saying, no, this is real. When, when I understand that he forgave me and I, when I repent, My life was changed. And now all of a sudden I see my human character turn, turning into the character of Christ himself. And I'm watching the fruit of that character start coming out of me. Those nine beautiful characteristics of Jesus, I'm watching come out of me. And that's proof 
that it's real. This was a real change. And can I just insert here a minute? This is something we need to go over that we, every one of us, has to kind of stop and say, can I say this? Can I say this about myself? Have I just been growing up with all of this? And I know all the phrases and I know all the words, but maybe I really never came in repentance and saw myself the way I really am, that my eyes never were really opened. I haven't seen, I haven't seen a change in me because it should be absolutely huge. But, but there, it doesn't happen overnight. Every day, I, this is something I look at myself every day. Do I see myself a little different today than I, than I was yesterday? Do, do I really desire to look more like Jesus today than yesterday? Then that means I have to self-deny again and more. And that's how when people can see it. Remember, they noticed with Peter and John that they were unlearned men, but they could tell that they had been with Jesus. When Stephen stood there, they, he had a radiancy about him. They knew that he knew Jesus. When we look to Jesus, are we really radiant? Is it noticeable? First of all, by our own self. Do we see that I'm not what I used to be? Do, does my life reflect the reality of the change in my heart? That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. I am telling the truth. I'm not exaggerating it. The Moses, the prophets, they all promised this. It's called the gospel, the story of Jesus. And that Christ, the Christ suffered, the Messiah, the Savior. He suffered, number one. And as the first to rise from the dead, so he rose from the dead. And remember we talked about Jesus is the first one that was raised from the dead that will never die again. Past resurrections of people, they, they get raised back into their, their human body, you know, through God's miraculous power and for a specific reason, but then they had to go through death again. Jesus was the first one that was raised from the dead to a new body, a new, a, and would never ever die again. And Paul is saying, I preach this Christ. He suffered. He, he fulfilled God the Father's plan. He paid it all. He doesn't have to do it again. He rose from the dead. And Paul says, now it's up to us who have received this to proclaim light We've got to tell the story. We've got to proclaim light to the Jews and Gentiles. He emphasized, I'm not making this up. This isn't just man's experience and traditions and all this. This is a life-changing change. This is for real. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. And I'm sure he didn't say that with a, a little voice. 
I don't think he said it with an inside voice. I think he just, he thought, this guy's crazy. Your great learning is driving you insane. That's what he said. You're, you're nuts. And I found, I found five reasons why I believe from this chapter that Festus thought Paul was crazy. Because in normal human conditions, he's relating it, see, to that, that change that um, Paul is relating to the change that happened to him. And that's why he's able to say what he's saying. But to, to someone who hasn't experienced that change and who just lives all for themselves, they're saying, this is, this is crazy. This can't happen. And one of them was, though Paul was a prisoner in chains, he was still filled with joy. Now, is he happy? Ha, ha, ha. I mean, no. But there's something, because there's such a difference between happiness and real joy, the joy of Jesus that comes from within. See, Festus couldn't understand that. It's not normal to be a prisoner in chains for over two years now, and you're still filled with joy. You're positive. You're not sitting here whining and complaining and critical. Another one was, he said, no one can insist that God could raise from the dead. I think that comment through Festus. When Paul just spoke, like, there's no denying it. He was raised from the dead. And how Festus said, how you could be so confident, something so bizarre. And the third thing, Festus is saying, I mean, come on, you experienced a heavenly vision? And your life has changed because of it? This light from heaven? And this voice that talks to you? Oh, come on. See, when it's real to you, when, it, when you've experienced it, I mean, it's just right there without any question. Bold and confident. But if you have never experienced it, no wonder, no wonder the Bible says that, that the things of the Lord look like foolishness to man. I've said this before, but this is, it's times like this that I'm so glad that my, my little motto is in ministry is, um, I'll do my best to explain Jesus, but really he can't be. He's got to be experienced. You've got to experience him. The fourth one, why I, I think Festus thought Paul was nuts, was Paul was more concerned and consumed with, with proclaiming Jesus and the message of the gospel more than he was about his own personal freedom. See, that's not normal. But when, you're, when you are sold out to the Lord Jesus and you know that his plan for you is to be a servant and a witness of that light because we live in such a dark world, well, you know, yeah, that comes first. That's, that's priority. But to Festus, no, thought it was crazy. The fifth one. Paul believed in a message of hope and redemption. He believed. He believed it. And you could tell he, was, he believed it from the depths of his soul because he experienced it himself. There's hope in Jesus. There's redemption in Jesus. And for Festus, he couldn't understand that and it's available to all. So he thought, that's not possible either. That this message of hope and redemption can be available for all humanity, Jew, Gentile. So I don't think Festus really said that because in just a quick flippant, I think as he was listening to Paul, he was adding this all up and finally he just thought, this is not normal. This guy's crazy. 
And then Paul comes back and says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. It's reasonable to me because I've experienced it and, and the Holy Spirit's changing my heart. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. So he throws that in there. The king knows. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it has, this was not done in a corner. In other words, this has been happening and it's way in the wide open and this is not in secret. So he's appealing to Agrippa. He's appealing. And then he turns to Agrippa and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. That was quite a potent question to throw out to the king. And I'm sure that King Agrippa started to feel a little challenged and uncomfortable. So his comment back was, and Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Do you think? Now, I looked in the King James too, and the King James, I think we kind of, a lot of us grew up with that, that it was more a statement that King Agrippa said back to Paul. In the King James, it says, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. It was a statement. And then in other versions, it's put into question. But I think, you know, he's basically saying, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? It's basically the same. You know, I look at that word, and that's why I appreciate the King James Version here because King Agrippa used the word almost. You almost persuaded me. As good as that sounds, unfortunately, almost is not enough. And that's what's so sad. And what keeps somebody to hear the gospel story like this and then to know I almost got me, but wh what does it that they just can't surrender? I'm, I'm just afraid as I, as I was looking at Felix and Festus and King Agrippa here, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, it's fear, fear of, of losing your reputation, fear of what people will think of you. It's pride. And you know, bottom line is, fear, pride, what people think, will send you right to hell. That's the severity of this. So whether you wanted to look at it in a question or a statement, I think we get the point. He said no. Oh, you were convincing, Paul. I mean, boy, you really had you really had your facts down. I mean, you know, you you really you you can really tell you're passionate about this. Paul came back with this reply: short time or long, I pray God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Paul is saying, I, I don't care whether you've heard it for the first time or whether you've heard this. Like you, Agrippa, you've been hearing it for a lot of years. And we know people like that today. Maybe somebody's hearing the gospel message, the saving gospel message of Jesus and the cross for the first time. And they have the opportunity to receive Jesus and become saved, born again with the Holy Spirit indwelling their life that they can be changed and sanctified, set apart, a part of God's family. I mean, you put it off, you say, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe next week, maybe next year, maybe when I'm older, 
Maybe when I, you know, sow my wild oats, maybe, all this, maybe. Almost. Ooh, maybe, almost, pretty soon, all these words, so dangerous. Bottom line, he said no. So he didn't want to leave the darkness and go into the light. He didn't want the power of God instead of the power of Satan. He didn't, he didn't care about being forgiven of his sins. And being a part of God's family meant nothing to him. He didn't want to be set apart as one of God's very own. And so Paul says, you know, whether you've heard it once or whether you've heard it so many times and you've been given this moment today to do something about it, my prayer to God that you will respond and say yes, that you will listen and become what I am. He's not boasting about, oh, be me. But yet he's saying, yes, do what I did, and that is believe in a Savior and accept him and watch your life change and find that you can have such success, lasting success, God's success working through your life. It's so fulfilling. It's so satisfying. It's so real. And I pray that for you. I pray that you don't miss this, not only for all eternity, but for now. The king rose, and with him, the governor and Bernice, those sitting with them, they left the room. See, now I'm in that room now, too, again. And now it's not so pomp. Now it's not so fancy. After Paul standing there with confident boldness of the truth and his life-changing servant witness. I think there's a whole different tune in that room. And they left the room and while talking with one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. That's all you can say? To get the, get the subject off each and every one of us individually and put it back on someone else and then we don't have to be confronted and deal with this. And They're walking out and they said, well, he didn't do anything that deserves death or imprisonment, which is true. But I don't think that's exactly what Paul wanted to hear, and that's not at all what, what Jesus wanted to hear. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And I go back to what I said at the beginning, because there are some people that think that Paul made a huge mistake by appealing to Caesar that he could have been set free. But I don't believe that for a second. He is so in tune with, his, with God's spirit. That's why he is able to write things like, in whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content because he is content because he knows that the Lord has put him there for a reason. If he hadn't been a prisoner, would he have been able to, to um, tell the story to Felix, to Festus, to Bernice, all those leaders of the community, to King Agrippa? And he wouldn't have been able, he wouldn't have gone to Rome. So uh, there is no doubt that God's plan is still in motion. Father in heaven, we thank you. May we take a look at our lives too and be mindful of how your plan in our life is in motion. Father, help us to want our eyes open. Help us to want to be sold out 
None of this almost stuff. That we are sold out to the gospel of Christ. Knowing full well what the gospel meant for each and every one of us. And Lord, may we be willing to serve, to be able to be a, a witness that we are never ashamed or embarrassed of who we are in Christ Jesus. He is our identity. Father, that's the beauty of it. He has taken away my human identity and he gave me his. Father, thank you for these lessons in Jesus' name. Amen.